Hello, good afternoon, good morning. is anti-Semitism in Europe, and I have uh, two very capable uh, uh, people who will be my guests today. My name is Moimir Kalus. I serve as the Vice President for International Affairs at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, and uh, we are going to speak with uh, a, a Jewish guest from uh, who lives in Paris and a Christian who lives in Germany. And I'm sure they will provide a very comprehensive look at this very disturbing phenomenon. But before I uh, go on and introduce them, let me just share a few words as an introduction. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism is nothing new in Europe. Throughout the centuries, when Europe was called a Christian continent, it was also the hotbed of anti-Jewish prejudice and persecutions of Jews. Uh, that was because early in church history, the teaching of contempt, as it is called now, took root when Jews were portrayed as the arch enemy of God, the Christ killers, people whom God himself rejected, and people who Christians should persecute. Uh, now we can say with regret that this teaching completely ignored the message of the Bible, including the many promises of restoration of the Jewish people, which are explicitly confirmed in the New Testament. And uh, worst of all, it made God a liar who will not keep his word. And uh, it wasn't until the late uh, 20th century that this deplorable theology was finally uh, shelved by most Christian denominations. And unfortunately, this theological foundation created a fertile ground for many uh, violent acts against Jews and uh, they were sometimes uh, accompanied by wild uh, folk or pagan anti-Semitism. Uh, let me just uh, say a few examples of what happened in Europe throughout the centuries. We are in the year 1095, when Pope Urban II called on Europeans to liberate Jerusalem from the hands of the Muslims. But many people soon uh, said, why should they travel thousands of miles to the land of Israel when infidels, non-believers, were much closer to home, namely the Jews. And that started a series of mass murders, mass, we would say today, pogroms, perpetrated by mobs, especially in Germany and France. Then another catastrophe struck Europe in the 14th century, the Black Death. And again, this plague, uh, which devastated uh, millions of people, devastated Europe, uh, caused Jews to be accused of causing it. One popular story suggested that Jews poisoned water wells to infect Christians. Despite the fact that Jews were also dying from the plague, the people believed the story, and as a result, thousands of Jews were massacred, and whole communities were wiped out across Europe. And so we can go on and on century after century. Jews were accused of ritual murder, that is using the blood of innocent Christians to bake the matzot. And don't worry that the 
Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, completely forbids Jews from eating blood. They were accused of abusing the host the, and tormenting Christ anew, as it were. Don't worry that they do not believe in the Christian doctrine of transubstantiation. Jews became the embodiment of the worst evil of the time. And no matter how bizarre the accusation, people were ready to believe it and act upon it by killing Jews. Then when uh, church lost its influence in society and enlightenment set in, Jews hoped that they would be now treated as equals. But soon, different type of prejudice emerged. Jews were finally given freedom to practice any profession and enter all walks of life. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them quickly succeeded in the rapidly changing environments of the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s. Some of them gained prominence in business, became successful. And here again, they were accused of uh, is the birth of conspiracy theories, which live until today. At the time of rising nationalism in Europe, again, 19th century, Jews were one minority which did not have a land of their own. They didn't have a language of their own. They were scattered across countries. Naturally, they have bones among themselves that went across national boundaries. So they were accused of being cosmopolitan, liberal, even communist. And in those days, that again represented evil. That was the time when Theodor Herzl came with the idea of a Jewish national revival, similar to uh, the similar movements in other countries. And it scored a spectacular success. The Jewish nation was reborn. The state of Israel was born. And there is again a state of the Jews after 2000 years, but the Jews are again going against the mainstream. They are today accused of being nationalistic, even fascist while the new elites are busy erasing borders and national identity. So we have this pattern, the worst, the worst evil, uh, which today seems to be racism, uh, colonialism. Well, this is again attributed to the Jews. The Jewish state is called colonialist, even though it is completely out of place. The Jewish state is called apartheid, racist. Why? Whatever is the worst evil at a time, it is always attributed to the Jews. No matter how bizarre the accusation, people seem to be still ready to believe it. And I will stop here because uh, this is the time for uh, entry of our uh, distinguished guests who will tell us about the latest trends in Europe, about some of the constituting streams of anti-Semitism and also what kind of development they see over the last few years. So let me uh, introduce them. First, Dr. Shimon Samuels. He serves as the Director for International Relations of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and he's based in Paris. He is responsible for issues of contemporary racism and anti-Semitism in Europe, Latin America, and also in international organizations. He was born in England, holds degrees in international relations from Hebrew University of Jerusalem, from London School of Economics and from Keio University in Tokyo and the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Shimon Samuels, great to have you. Welcome to this webinar. And uh, you need to unmute your microphone. Okay. Now we can hear you, yes. 
Now, again. Now? Now you are, yes. Okay, very good. So thank you uh, to you and to David Parsons and the Christian Embassy in Jerusalem who invited me, the ladies, gentlemen, uh, friends. Uh, I've put a little subtitle before um, because I like and hope that it'll become clearer due, in due course. And that is uh, the Lord took us out of Egypt with a clenched fist and an outstretched arm. And uh, I would like to talk mainly about the outstretched arm later, okay? Uh, as you said, I was born in the UK weeks after VE Day. I grew up with a respect for water, uh, the 30 miles of channel that saved us, and the 330,000 British Jews listed in the Wannsee Protocol. I think that you have that uh, in our PowerPoint, if you would like to show it. Um, and in the Wannsee Protocol, there were uh, 11 million Jews in 33 countries that were listed for extermination. And today, the Atlantic or Pacific Oceans cannot defend continents from hate. We are all tripwires for one another. Um, I opened my office in Paris in uh, 1980. In fact, uh, it's the same year as the um, International Christian Embassy in uh, Jerusalem. On the eve of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, I visited a prominent Israeli journalist, Tamal, living in, on the corner of the Rue Copernic in Paris. Uh, her house guest, Elisa, the wife of a, an important film maker, had just arrived from Israel. She asked Tamal, anything needed for dinner? Uh, yes, a few dates. Go down with Shimon. He will show you the food shop near the synagogue. At the corner, I continued straight. Elisa entered into the Rue Copernic, where minutes later she met her death. Next morning, Prime Minister Raymond Bau announced a bomb set for Jews killed four innocent Frenchmen. Actually, the, the death toll was one Portuguese delivery boy, a late worshipper, Elisa and one innocent Frenchman. At first, the government blamed the far right. We saw the prince of the PFLP, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine Special Ops. Copernic launched two years of 73 shootings and bombings of Jewish and Israeli targets across Western Europe, 29 in France, I tabulated them. It ended in August 1982 with the Goldenberg restaurant massacre in the Jewish quarter of Paris. And the question is, why did it end? An Israeli incursion into southern Lebanon, it was called the uh, bus attack, uh, made European terrorists in Palestinian training camps flee, flee home. And once home, they forgot the Jews, they needed money. And they began attacking banks and embassies and uh, military uh, uh, bases. French, Italian, German governments cracked down, showing uh, the truth of the late Simon Wiesenthal's note. What he used to say was, what starts with the Jews never ends with them. So this, in this we uh, um, end the first, oh yes, I'm sorry. So, so ended the first wave of anti-Semitic terror. And we can fast forward 30 years. I was in Ottawa. Hassan Diab, the only suspect for the Copernic bombing, faced an extradition procedure for trial in France. After two years in France, 
He used the window of opportunity to escape back to Canada while an appeal against him was still pending. A few days later, we saw in the newspapers, he was back in Ottawa with his family, a hero for the Palestinian cause. Now, the first wave of terror was imported from the Middle East. The second was a transplantation of the Intifada 2000 to Europe, enacted by young, uh, native-born and radicalized young uh, people. In, they were radicalized in mosques, in schools, and they were playing out a game of cowboys and Indians refitted as Palestinians and Israelis. Their local target were Jewish neighbors living side by side in the communist red slum rings around major cities. And then the third wave came, and that included lone wolf uh, jihadis. The next stage in Judeophobia was the UN World Conference Against Racism. And um, if you can turn to that, uh, this was held in Durban in South Africa just a few days before 9-11. This was the most anti-Semitic hate fest since Nazi Germany. On the Friday night, thousands surrounded the small synagogue in Durban, brandishing banners. Hitler did not finish the job. I was the only Jew elected to the NGO International Steering Committee. And therefore, I participated uh, for the year before in PREPCOMs, preparatory uh, committees in Geneva, Santiago, Warsaw. I was excluded for the last one in Tehran. And uh, in Geneva, uh, a, um, in a debate on Holocaust denial, the PLO legal counsel, a young lady, slinked up behind where I was sitting and whispered in my ear, we will give you the Holocaust if you give us Palestine. A Dutch colleague photoed my uh, horrified face for posterity. On arrival in Durban, I was expelled from the steering committee to shouts of the world Jew. And in December, three months later, I attended uninvited the final session of the uh, uh, committee in Geneva. An eight point plan, and here if you can please uh, go to the eight point plan. Yes, that's it. An eight point plan was on the table and snatched away eventually, and did not, no, no one claimed paternity for it. But an educational, an, number one, an educational inculcation campaign through United Nations agencies on apartheid Israel. Two, a legal campaign in the International Criminal Court and countries of universal jurisprudence to arrest Israelis for crimes against humanity. And that is certainly in the works today. Number three, cancellation of the law of return for Jews to Israel. And four, its replacement by the right of return for all Palestinians. And then five, reactivation of the dormant economic boycott. But six was cultural, scientific, sports, academic embargoes, now known as BDS, boycott divestment sanctions. Number seven was rupture of diplomatic relations, rendering Israel a, pari a pariah state. And above all, eight was penalties for states and NGOs refusing to comply. Now, the Durban program didn't die in Durban. It was now promulgated by the Anti-Globalization World Social Forum based in Porto Alegre, Brazil. At the first of such rallies, I stood in a stadium decked out with banners reading, no Jews, Nazis, Yankees, no more chosen peoples, whatever that may mean with 76,000 young militants from over 100 countries 
screaming, Viva la Intifada Global. Uh, it was also very interesting, and I think it'd be interesting for the International um, uh, Christian uh, Embassy. Uh, there was a session uh, for religious leaders on uh, the Kairos document. And the Kairos document had pointed out that chosen people and promised land was colonialist. And so those churches that were there present chose to rewrite it to all of us are chosen the land is promised to all. It was there that BDS was planned. Each year we would learn the forthcoming campaigns and calendars set to harm Israel and by association, world jury and our Christian friends. For example, an early warning meeting of the Gaza flotilla. Durban two in Geneva in 2009 and three in 2011 in New York were both opened by then Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad spewing Judeophobia and hate. The planning of Durban 4 has begun. It, has, it will take place at the United Nations New York next September. We wrote to foreign ministers of a dozen democracies urging them to refuse to participate in this exercise of hate. So far, Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, United States have answered. If there are people present here from Germany or from uh, France and other countries, please join us in this campaign. Durban was stressed by the book of Amos, who spoke of the three sins of Damascus. We've already had three Durbans and the fourth, which would see no reprieve, we hope. In January 2015, the murderous assaults on Charlie Hebdo magazine and the kosher supermarket resulted in 17 dead. Here hung a question. Had there been only the Jewish target, would millions have marched and over 50 world leaders arrive in Paris? Or would it have remained once more a footnote in the litany of anti-Semitic attacks? But they marched and we joined them under a Wiesenthal Center balloon. You can see the balloon which says, um, I am for, uh, uh, I, I am for uh, Charlie, police, and Jews. Now, Charlie Hebdo published cartoons not only on Muhammad, also anti-Semitic cartoons on a regular basis. Jews, however, counterattack through the courts of law, not with Kalashnikovs. We are the only Jewish organization to go low-tech, monitoring each year seven Arab book fairs and the fair affairs in Frankfurt. Each year we give a most offensive award. Last year it went to Iran for children's books from the age of four to seven, extolling shahada or suicide terror. An important find on the Lebanese stand was a front for Syria and it was called the Burak Wall. Unfortunately, I think it's not coming through. Uh, but the Burak Wall tells the story of Muhammad flying from Mecca to heaven via Jerusalem. There were no direct flights there, but there he tethered his horse, Burak, to a wall. This book identifies the Kotel, the Western Wall, the greatest shrine to the Jews. And it says that the Jews stole this and it must be returned to Islam. Now, there's a very clever political angle to it. The wall is a, 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 a 
close to, right next to, the Mugrabi ramp, which leads up to the Temple Mount. If the Kotel, this wall, were mis uh, identified as Muslim, then um, Muslims, uh, non-Muslims would be unable to trespass. And uh, they, uh, this would be a major in entry into the sacred basin for Islam. And also the basis for violence across the Muslim world. Given a talk, giving a talk like this at the European Parliament, I warned of the danger of such Arab school texts translated and distributed in English, French, Spanish, and German. Apparently a British MEP shared the message with then Prime Minister David Cameron, who a few days later announced measures. Now we turn to a lesser, but much more pernicious form of anti-Semitism, which emanates from UNESCO. The German strategist von Clausewitz said that diplomacy is war by other means. Since the 2011 entry of Palestine, UNESCO has become a battlefield for the ID theft of, uh, of Jewish and Christian historical sites, especially regarding the Temple Mount. The church of the Nativity in Bethlehem was granted to Palestine through a street stratagem. A letter was placed on each seat of every state, ostensibly uh, from the Nativity Church custodians, the Copts, the Ethiopians, and the Catholics. The letter was addressed to President Abbas, stating we are happy to transfer our church to Palestine. A friendly European uh, government gave me the other original letter. Mr. President, it said, this is not the time to change the custody. During the lunch break, I placed the other letter on the tables, but no one backed up the issue. Two years later in Erevan, Armenia, I met with the Armenian Pope, the Catholicos, and I was there with a group of 16 people and frontally, he responded when I asked, well, how could you have obliged and allowed this theft? He responded that the Palestinian campaigners had forged the letter. The Palestinian stratagem is to de-Judaize Jews and Christian history to validate their non-history. Hence, Jesus became Palestinian. A caricature was based on a well-known photo, and we could move to that photo, of a Jewish child hands raised, facing German soldiers at the fall of the Warsaw Ghetto. The cartoonist placed a kefir scarf, as you can see, on the boy's head and drew a Star of David on the German helmets. With a few brush strokes, very few, the child of the Holocaust becomes the, ch the child of the Nakba, the so-called Palestinian Holocaust, and the Nazis become Jewish Israeli soldiers. And those Europeans who look back and sigh, rejecting their guilt for colonialism and for the Holocaust, their two greatest crimes. Voila, the Jews are worse than we were. The Jews were worse than the Nazis. So we have ID theft, and you can see, you can see uh, that in the uh, Palestine seeks its validation. Supersession is a, is a historical imperative. It's uh, resulting in people's deletion from history and geography. In the case of the Jewish people, especially after the Holocaust, delegitimization is a step towards annihilation. And in a taxonomy of anti-Semitism, 
ID theft may be viewed as genocidal intent to erase the Jewish state from time and space. In May 2004, I was invited by Polish President Alexander Kwasniewski as one of eight speakers on the dangers of joining the European Union. My subject was anti-Semitism, of course. I felt enthusiasm for the European enlargement as a supranational identity is often a factor in Jewish history. The only unhyphenated Czechoslovak, there were Czechs, there were Slovaks, but the, the, those who are unhyphenated Czech, Czechoslovaks or Yugoslavs were Jews. A Soviet ID was much safer than a document marked Yevrei or Jew. But my enthusiasm for supranational Europe has since been doused by its attitudes toward the Jewish state, not only the Jewish state, when anti-Soviet heroes who happened to be Nazi sympathizers and collaborators manifested their colors in a growing neo-antisemitism. Left to right wings, left on the left to the right, wings of populism move to the political extremities, threatening Jewish life and rights. Jews are mainly centrists. And from circumcision to kosher meat slaughter, what is that in relationship to anti-Zionism? The far left Islamist marriage bring out, brought out huge anti-Israeli rallies. I walk in the opposite direction in Paris, recognizing as concierge, a bank teller, and by the time they might recognize me, I'm long gone. And I believe they have the right to march, even for Palestine, until Hamas supporters peel away to smash Jewish shops and institutions. That, for me, is the ritual. That, for me, is our return to the clenched fist, from the clenched fist to the outstretched arm conundrum. An Israeli father takes his son as a bar mitzvah present on a tour of classical Europe. The father tells his son, outside Israel, most people are not Jewish, they're Christian. At the Parthenon in, Paris, in, in Athens, the boy asks, Abba, are these people Jewish? No, answers the father, Christians. Some question, same question at the Roman Colosseum. At the Eiffel Tower in Paris, at the end of the trip, the child says, Abba, I feel so sorry for these Christians. They are spread all over the world. We need you stretched all over the world. We need you with an outstretched arm. Our sages have long debated two distinct modes of interaction with the world. The first is a people that dwells alone, ostracized, marginalized, ghettoized, victimized. That cannot be the future of the Jewish people. And the second is a light unto the nations, a barometer, an alarm bell, a participant. And a couple of examples before I end. The Rwandan government followed the machete genocide of over 800,000 deaths in 100 days. They held a meeting on rehabilitation, memory, and justice. I sat among an intergenerational gathering of Armenian, Jewish, Cambodian, Bosnian, and Tutsi survivors in a shared circle of communion. Between us, there was no packing order of tragedy, no competition in suffering, no theft from each other's narrative, 
and a total respect for all the victims. Another example is the 25th anniversary of Saddam Hussein's gassing of the Kurds of Halabja. Anything that has poison gas in it, it becomes a Jewish question, ipso facto. But I uh, was on a solidarity visit and to speak to the survivors and to see if we could find help for 95% today, damage to lungs and eyes. I explained, as a Jew, once exiled from the land of Israel to Babylon, here a few kilometers from today's Iraq, we wrote a book called the Talmud, which states, if I am not for myself, who will be? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? We are here for you, just as I believe that you would be there for us. And here, come please to the next slide, the last three slides, that's it. Perhaps an early antidote or even a vaccine of sorts is our exhibition, a Jewish trinity composed by my wife, Graciela, then the only high level Israeli official at UNESCO, people, book, land. The 3,500 year relationship of the Jewish people with the Holy Land, the land of Israel. In 24 panels, from Abraham the father and Moses the lawgiver to Israel as a startup nation, a land and people of hope, this is our outstretched arm. Through the International Christians Embassy in Jerusalem. If you just can bring it down to the end, yeah. So this is in the Vatican and this is in the British uh, Parliament. And I think that's where we are. So this outstretched arm through the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem, we are there for you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Samuels, for this extraordinary presentation and a tour de force really for uh, our uh, listeners. Uh, that has been a great uh, expose indeed. Uh, I would now turn to our second guest from uh, Germany, and I just uh, would let uh, everybody know that uh, we are going to have a Q&A session uh, after this next presentation, so anyone who is interested can pose a question on the chat. Uh, my next uh, panelist is uh, Mr. Christoph Schanweber. Uh, he's German. He is a member of the International Christian Embassy uh, office in Germany. He serves as a speaker, political advisor, and a prayer coordinator, and he lives in Stuttgart. And uh, uh, before I, I give him the word, I would also like to have a, a personal story which actually relates to both of you gentlemen. Uh, without you knowing it, you both participated uh, in uh, different times in the same event. You both uh, were part of a pro-Israel rally held in Prague, which is one of the ways we are fighting anti-Semitism and making a public stand. Uh, Dr. Samuels, you were there in the very first year together with David Parsons in 2004 in the in the beautiful garden of the of the Czech Senate and uh, Christoph you were there a few years later as as a speaker of the German delegation so uh, I think this uh, is a is a nice convergence and uh, it, it just shows that there is a common uh, threat uniting us all Jewish and Christians who are here each for each other so Christoph the floor is yours please tell us what you have on your heart 
Thank you very much, Moimir. I'm very glad that you mentioned the meeting at Prague because uh, it uh, remained with a great um, impression on me, not just that there is such a meeting and that many people are joining, but uh, also the, the very bold and frank, uh, direct uh, way of speech that the Czech politicians uh, participating had. I'm from Germany, I'm used with very uh, diplomatic speeches, uh, very nice words that there is not always a lot behind. And uh, this really remained in my mind from the time in Prague that uh, the people in Eastern Europe, they always like to say it a little bit more clear. And when it comes to Israel, I think this is also very necessary. I first want to thank very much to uh, give thanks very much to Dr. Shimon Samuels, not just for his input now, but as a German, I want to tell honestly the fact that the Simon Wiesenthal Center is publishing every year uh, a list of top 10 anti-Semitic uh, persons or organizations. Um, this is really a help and uh, that uh, moves more in Germany, to be very honest, uh, than sometimes uh, our work, uh, our ministry, our uh, lobbyism that we uh, do. So the fact that uh, the uh, German ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Mr. Heusken, was once on this list or other German cultural institutions, this really gives a very big uh, public uh, information, people begin to discuss, uh, German newspapers are reporting. Of course, German politicians, then they are rejecting and they say it's not like that, but this is the official way um, behind uh, the curtains, let's say like this, uh, in the uh, closed uh, rooms, uh, there is an influence of this list that I really want to thank you for what was published in the last years and I uh, really want to ask you also in the future to continue to publish such a list and to continue also to name very clearly people and organizations that are working anti-Semitic in this time. And this is really um, having an influence in Germany. So please give this also to some uh, other people in your board, uh, people with responsibility. Um, it is very much appreciated in Germany what you do. This year in Germany, we have a special anniversary because it is 1,700 years of uh, documented Jewish life in Germany. So there are some documents that show us that in the year of 321, officially a Jewish community in the city of Cologne, in Cologne, was um, recognized by the emperor at that time so this year, 1,700 years of Jewish life is, in a way, celebrated. So this is a very official thing, and immediately you will see why I'm uh, starting uh, my speech with this. It's a very official thing. German president uh, opened it officially, and all kinds of politicians and important people are participating at all kinds of uh, events linked to this uh, 1,700 years. It is also an interesting thing because it shows us then that uh, 1,700 years ago, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was worshipped in Germany, while we Germans have to recognize very honestly that our uh, ancestors and forefathers 1,700 years ago did not go to a church yeah, to worship uh, such kind of God, 
but we were heavens and we were believing uh, in the power of trees and of moons and of suns and of all kind of animistic beliefs. So uh, the question is not, uh, did uh, Germany, the Christian country, receive at one time also some Jews and they could practice their religion? But the question is uh, that uh, how, how many years later uh, Germans turned to this monotheistic belief while uh, Jews had this and were practicing this in Germany already years before. So everything in Germany that belongs to Israel, to Jewish life, in this year of 1,700 uh, years of anniversary, is, is in a combination with that fact that we celebrate the Jewish life in Germany. So it was really a big shock in our country that uh, even if in the last years we had a growing number of anti-Semitic incidences that were already reported, then in these years, during that 4,000 uh, rockets attack from Gaza um, going against uh, different Israel, uh, Israeli cities, yeah, we had plenty of manifestations on German streets where uh, people, so-called pro-Palestinian people, uh, were demonstrating not just that they do not agree with the politics in Israel or that they want to have a free Palestine, this is some things that we are used to since many years to hear, but uh, they were um, uh, pronouncing hate, they were singing songs against Israel, they were burning Israeli flags, and not just in one city, or let's say in, in one uh, big uh, meeting like we had in the past uh, once a year in Berlin, the so-called Al-Quds Day, where um, people especially um, from a migration background, uh, were behaving against Israel's, Israel in the past, but it was happening in many, many cities in Germany. Many crimes uh, were happening. Uh, Jewish journalists were attacked. Uh, it was put uh, fire to uh, synagogues or to, to uh, very important uh, Jewish uh, um, institutions and so on. And it was not just a few days but it was uh, something that was going on for a longer period, showing us the real bad um, uh, influence that exists in our country. And I have put a link in the chat, and uh, because I'm not sure if it's working well from my computer and my internet connection I tried before, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure, Moimir, if you just can show on, on this uh, website, there is a, a movie, a film, a clip. Uh, uh, you see already some people with Turkish and Palestinian flags and just need to be uh, put to play. So just to see what was one of these uh, uh, demonstrations. I hope I got the right one. This is what I got on the link. Okay, so I'm... I'm sorry, there's not, not something down there. I don't okay. see a video here. Yeah, okay, so I will give it uh, just a minute later. Um, very sorry, there's just a misunderstanding in the copy and paste here. So what was happening is that uh, many uh, people were on the streets uh, shouting against Israel and uh, against uh, Jewish uh, life. And um, this was really something that shocked us uh, in uh, Germany. Moimir, on, on that page, if you go a little bit down, you see a Twitter 
and it's from the Central Council of Jews in Germany. The webpage that I gave to you, I'm sorry if it didn't work. I'm very sorry for this, please. Uh, yes, I'm scrolling down. And there is a, a, a Twitter, or that may be blocked in your country. Ah, okay, I'm sorry. Because there is a Twitter movie from the Central Council of Jews in Germany. Yeah, I'm showing. I think, I think I have it now. Let me just share. Okay. Uh, again. Sorry for the audience for this. Yeah. We just have to find out how this works here. I think this is it. So I'm. Yeah, exactly. If you can just put the, the button a little bit. And maybe the sound, I don't know if it's possible. But I can also tell you that uh, people here are uh, screaming very ugly things, uh, shits to uh, Jews. I don't want to use all the words that they use because we are here in a civilized meetings. And this, this just shall give you a very short impression of one of these demonstrations. And many of these meetings, police uh, was uh, present, uh, was also guarding a little bit, but was not interfering. And this uh, is a really new situation in Germany, again, in that year of 1,700 years of Jewish life. And this really gave a wake up, gave a shock in the German society, uh, led politicians not just to do all kinds of nice declarations like uh, this happened also until now, but really uh, now they uh, did uh, something, laws are changed so that anti-Semitic crime and anti-Semitic manifestations um, can be forbidden or can uh, be punished uh, uh, better. The German government has agreed to ban Hamas flag after anti-Semitic incidents. Um, we have a change of law that uh, people that apply for German citizenship uh, will not receive that citizenship if they participated in um, anti-Semitic um, actions. That was in some ways before, but now uh, it is uh, made stronger. And it is also um, the tendency that even if somebody receives the German citizenship, but afterwards is participating in anti-Semitic uh, criminal actions, the German government should be able to say that when he received the German citizenship, he was not honest to say that he is... Uh, uh, standing on the ground of the German constitution, but the German government could say then that he is lying so he can also lose the citizenship. So this uh, may sound not very uh, interesting for many of you, but for Germany, this is a big step because we are a country of immigration and we have a lot of immigration from the Muslim background countries. And we received, uh, for example, one uh, million people from Syria, refugees. Uh, we have four million people with a uh, Turkish, Kurdish background and so on. And German citizenship was quite easy to be received in the last years. And uh, now these things are changed. We also have a new situation that we have the first rabbi that is joining the German army, but not as a, jo not as a soldier but uh, as a, a Jewish priest, to uh, be a priest, not only to Jewish soldiers in the German army, but to be a priest also and to be available to all people um, that are participating in the German army. So if you just see the, the, the symbolic background, yeah, that is a Jewish priest officially 
joining German army that uh, was known for all that crimes, then we really have uh, a change here and we really have a lot of steps that uh, German politics tries to do. But nevertheless, we have to recognize that anti-Semitism in Germany is more than just imported. Even if now politicians are more boldly speaking out that we have a problem of imported anti-Semitism by uh, Muslim immigrants, yeah, to be very honest, German in the history didn't need any Muslims to be anti-Semitic. And we have to recognize that uh, according to polls and surveys, anti-Semitism has grown in the midst of our society. Yeah? So that it's 25% um, of the population that is saying Jews have uh, too much uh, power in the world, Jews have too much influence over the German government. So if you see that there are maybe 100,000 Jews, or it depends what kind of statistic do you use now, and you see there are 80 million people in Germany, how can such a little group of people that, that even uh, most of them coming from the former Soviet Union states, yeah, they are not a Jewish uh, economy, big players in Germany for the last years, but 90% of the Jewish community in Germany actually comes from the Soviet Union and they, come, they came very pure uh, in the 90s, yeah, and um, then we have these many Germans believing that they control or they have too much influence in the German government, then this is something that is really worrying us. And because people are here that are also having a religious and a Christian background, I really want to urge you that we are fighting this on all kinds of political uh, levels, but also to see it as a spiritual problem. And uh, I can just ask you to pray for Germany and to help uh, our country uh, because uh, it is really a shame for my nation and my people that such a behavior is happening on our street. Maybe one last positive um, thing is that the biggest newspapers in Germany, the so-called Bildzeitung and Welt, is run by um, a company called Springer that was always very Israel-friendly. And during the uh, anti-Israel and anti-Jewish life uh, demonstrations in Germany, the, the head of uh, Springer, Mr. Matthias Döpfner, he said, who is anti-Israel cannot work for us. And he didn't care with this affirmation if this is according to German labor uh, force laws or not. He just said, who is not for Israel, who is anti-Israel cannot work for us. And uh, you see, I tried to show you some negative things happening. And of, of course, the numbers are rising of anti-Semitic incidents, but I also try to show you that at least there is a certain wake up in my country and we all hope that the wake up will finally lead uh, to the fact that anti-Semitism uh, will not increase any longer, but will decrease and that more and more people of the society will stand up. We did it with the ICEJ, certain manifestations, other pro-Israel organizations did. We need more of this. We need more that the society is going on the streets with the Israel flag. But um, it's, a long, it's a long way. And uh, it is good to be joined together in ICJ with people of all kinds of countries that are doing this together. Thank you, Christoph. Uh, I think there was a very informative overview of uh, what is going on in Germany. Um, I welcome David Parsons, who recently joined us, and I'm sure he was going to have a question. 
but before that, I would uh, like to ask my first question, uh, perhaps to uh, Dr. Samuels first. Uh, you both already hinted at some of the sources of current anti-Semitism in Europe. Uh, some of that comes from the Muslim world with their prejudice, which sometimes had been borrowed from the Christian prejudice of the past, by the way. And uh, some of them also comes from the extreme right in, uh, uh, like in countries like Germany with the typical Nazi type prejudice. Uh, 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 but there are also uh, other sources uh, the the current uh, uh, talk about uh, you know the the colonialism and racism it seems to be coming from the left. How would you, uh, Dr. Samuels, uh, assess the the different streams and if they work in a way together or are separate? Or what uh, what is the source of uh, the ideological source of anti-Semitism as you see it in Europe today? I see anti-Semitism as a drop of mercury. If you have this drop of mercury, let's say, on your, on your hand, uh, when it's cool, then it will be flat. If it's uh, a, a warm, hot, then in that case, it will rise and rise almost to explosion. Yeah. And I think that whatever happens, there is no way to rid yourself of that drop of mercury. It will be there forever. It is our job to try to keep it low. And um, however, first we know that social media has changed the world. And where in my childhood, we would uh, see flyers, anti-Semitic or anti-whatever, particularly anti-Pakistani, uh, flyers under your um, your wiper, your car wiper, and maybe that would go to a hundred to two hundred a day. Today, social media is immediate, and it is huge. So that is a major uh, challenge, and I think that it, to some degree it's a losing challenge because even if the big boys. Uh, put to play in. There are so many now that uh, are able, and um, so that's that's one of the problems. Uh, I think that anti-Semitism is going to be around. Okay, how is it? Why is it around during the uh, the pandemic? Because the pandemic was a wonderful opportunity. The Jews, uh, they they are buying up all of the vaccines. The Jews are uh, not giving them their vaccines to the Palestinians and other neighbors. Uh, the Jews are making money out of the vaccine. Uh, and I mean, it all goes together. And it's very, very difficult to fight against this type of language. Um, I have a problem also, and it's a problem that many people don't agree with. That is, uh, anti-Semitism is spelt in the main with a hyphen. Uh, I went 19, uh, when was it in, um, uh, I think it was 1993. Uh, there was, the Protocols of um, Zion was republished in Moscow. And I was invited to come and to um, talk with the judge and to be like uh, sort of an amicus curiae. And the judge, 
Then we went back into the uh, court. This was just outside of uh, Moscow in a small place called Cheremushki. And I told her that the whole world is watching you because this is where the, the protocols were written and distributed. And so she gave an order that she would um, want within three months a report on uh, Semitism. Semitism, which was be historic, it would be uh, juridical, it would be um, psychological, but Semitism. And I took her aside and I said to her, Madam, I mean, this is not Semitism. There is no Semitism. If you talk about Semitism, that means it's the whole Muslim world. So it is anti-Semitism. From that point on, I have no longer hyphenated the word anti-Semitism. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's in any way uh, simple. Now also, there, what to one other example, and this pertains particularly to France. Judges today in French courts, they are those who learned from the 1968 revolutionary who became lawyers and, and magistrates and this is their next generation. They cannot understand how the victims of racism can also be the perpetrators of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And so what we find is, at the best of it, a rotating door where the, uh, um, the judge will give a little you know, snap on the wrist and say, don't do it again. Then we have also, as I'm sure many of you remember, uh, the murder of um, uh, Halimi, and the fact that everything was crystal clear. The, the, the police were there but didn't knock down the door. They heard the, the uh, killer screaming, Allahu Akbar. He threw her over the balcony, and yet, he was freed, he was uh, exonerated due to the fact that he was under the influence of cannabis or alcohol or heroin, it doesn't matter. But he will go home to the um, Bonlieu in, in, in Paris, to his group, and he will be a hero. And this will be a, a, an element that we can, I think, it's still clear that there will be more and more uh, cases of, of, of this type of behavior. Now, I, I only yesterday wrote a letter to uh, an old friend of mine. He is now 89. When it happened, he was 84. His son uh, woke up during the night. They lived in just outside of Paris. And um, he tried to turn the lights on. It was dead. So he went to the door because the box, the electricity box was outside. And three burst in with knives and uh, uh, screwdrivers. They uh, threatened to rape his mother. They uh, tied them up. They beat them. And now the, the lawyers are saying, well, you know, it's only a robbery. Now, all of this has a point to it, because if it's only a robbery, then in that case, there was one level of sentencing. You're soon paroled 
and out because there were too many uh, um, prisoners and they want to get rid of them. But also it avoids the, uh, um, what is considered to be the aggravating factor of hate crime. That aggravating factor keeps them in. So from one step to another to step in France today, there is a, a, a move of the, of the French uh, jurisprudence to the abyss. Well, uh, that's quite disturbing, I should say. Uh, we have an opportunity to compare this uh, situation with Germany because of the different history. It seems to me that uh, the German establishment is uh, still a bit more cautious about uh, letting hate crime go unpunished. Uh, uh, how do you see it, Christoph? Is, uh, uh, what is the approach of the uh, German judiciary to hate crimes? I think uh, the German courts, even if the people are influenced by the 1968 movement, that certainly has its influence in Germany. But I think the German courts are, and the, the judges, are still quite determined uh, to uh, give uh, hard sentences. Speaking generally, there can always be an exception. But I see more a problem in Germany uh, out of the 1968 movement would be the media area, and not just certain uh, television channels or certain websites, but it's a very much uh, left-wing influence on the media. And uh, we could see this also again uh, when the rockets from Gaza came against Israel, but then we could see a, a certain development which was quite interesting. That um, common commentators uh, sitting in Germany and giving their political analysis about what's happening in Israel, they, they just gave the, the normal things that we know that uh, Israel is guilty and so on. But the journalists that were in Israel at that time and sitting in their hotels and hearing the bombs and seeing the, 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 the lights on the heaven suddenly changed in their attitude and, and uh, became uh, a more, uh, under they, begin, they began to understand more the Israeli position. They began even to defend um, the Israeli way of doing that uh, before they wouldn't have done that. So that's an interesting thing. Another thing just to mention, because the uh, COVID uh, influence um, was mentioned by Dr. Shimon Samuels, interesting in Germany was that during the beginning of the COVID vaccination campaign, the uh, sympathy for Israel was growing in a way in Germany, also in the German media, that we would not have dreamed before, yeah? because Germans said, our government is not able to give us the vaccination, but Israel is doing it. And these uh, Jewish guys, even if it's not clear what will be the long-term effects of the vaccination, they are, are ready uh, to be like a test, testing people for the whole world. So, so suddenly we had a, an increase of uh, Israel sympathy in Germany that we could not have dreamed before. So at the same time, COVID was also used for all kinds of uh, conspirational theories and so on, like it was uh, worldwide. But in Germany, it had a little uh, different effect. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I just would like to add that uh, since we are speaking about Europe, uh, we have covered uh, so far mostly France and Germany. And uh, I would add that Europe is also uh, has its eastern part. 
uh, it used to be divided by the Iron Curtain. And uh, I come from the other part and we were looking with admiration uh, at, west, at the Western part of Europe for many years, hoping to become one of them. And uh, uh, strangely, the situation seems to be changing and it looks like not all of them, but some of the Eastern European countries uh, and especially my country, the Czech Republic, and also Slovakia, and also Poland and Hungary um, and Slovenia, they seem to have learned a lesson from uh, that uh, type of ideology. And they are, uh, on a general note, more understanding uh, towards Israel. And also this, uh, we, uh, there are not many uh, refugees from the Muslim countries, for one, the leftist ideology is not so widespread like in the West because uh, those countries were ruled by extreme leftist ideology called communism. And uh, so what happened, for instance, a, a few weeks ago during the conflict, and I haven't seen it before, so that, uh, like Christoph says, there seems to be a new development. Uh, mayors of major Czech cities decided to fly the Israeli flag on their public buildings as a sign of solidarity. And that included the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Prague and the Prague Castle, the seat of the president and the seat of the prime minister. And uh, there were many other you know, symbolic acts of um, uh, understanding and solidarity. And also even the media was fairly covering it with, at least at the beginning, uh, with, with a rational uh, approach uh, and not exchanging the cause and effect as is usually the case with media reporting. So. Uh, I would say that we, we do have some hope that uh, if we are active, we can, we can go against this current of anti-Semitism, but for sure it is different in different uh, environments in different parts of Europe. Uh, I see my friend David, would you have a question, David? Uh, one of the last questions we have for this seminar. <clears throat> Uh, yes, uh, good to be here, Moimir. Um, I, I just uh, would make a couple comments and, and see, especially if Dr. Samuels would uh, respond. First of all, uh, the Christian embassy is called to comfort Israel and the Jewish people, and you can't always uh, persuade all the crazies out there who are anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, but uh, if we are able to comfort some of our Jewish friends that they're not alone, that they're not hatred, hated, and, and in fact, the people who used to hate them the worst now love them deeply, uh, you know, th this is important for our, uh, us. And I think it's important, whether in Germany or France or any country, that the local Christians, and especially the local Christian leaders, befriend the Jewish community uh, in their areas and, and work with them to, uh, to just so secure the uh, place for both our faiths today. Judeo Christian values are basically under assault in Western democratic countries, and we need to stand together for our rich biblical heritage. And second, uh, uh, I was just on a, um, a webinar earlier this week with Chris Mitchell of CBN News. We had uh, Dr. Samuels, your colleague, Rabbi Jonathan Cooper, with us. It was a very good time. 
but we, they, they did a, uh, they showed one of the CBN news reports from Auschwitz with uh, Rabbi Lau, who's the chairman of uh, Yad Vashem now, used to be chief rabbi of Israel. And he talked about anti-Semitism uh, being like a spiritual madness. And I really do think that, um, you know, we're dealing with uh, an irrationality and, a, and a, it is a spiritual battle. And I think we have to keep in mind that ever since God chose the Jewish people and blessed them for the purpose of world redemption, he, he said it out there, you need to bless these people because I blessed them. But if you curse them, you come under a curse. And uh, anti-Semitism is a spirit that you either agree with or not. And if you, um, if you agree with it, you come under a curse. You curse yourself. The Palestinians, by feeding it into their children right now, they curse the next generation. That, that it's hard for God to move on their behalf because of this. And I think this is one of the aims that people of faith like us need to keep in mind to, that some people infected by anti-Semitism, you'll never cure them, you'll never get a, to break out of it. But the people that they're in, trying to infect as well, we need to, uh, you know, pray for deliverance and show mercy. I have, you know, spoken and had people come up afterwards repenting of the things and the thoughts that they had towards the Jews. Uh, and it, uh, you're helping deliver them from a curse. And we need to keep that in mind. And I know uh, Dr. Samuels, others, we study anti-Semitism and all, but at, at the heart, doesn't it seem like Rabbi Lau said, a spiritual malady, a mental, uh, and for many people, a, a mental problem and, and a, a spiritual illness? Um, can I, yeah. can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay, David, it's good to uh, see you. Um, as kids, we used to have a ditty, how odd of God to choose the Jews. And the answer was, it's not so odd the Jews cho chose God. <laughs> um, first of all, I, I, I would like you just to explain what we do and what we hope to do. Um, and what you heard from Rabbi Cooper is also the same as what we do in Europe. And it's basically, we're looking for the holes in the cheese. Uh, resources are limited. So what we're trying to do is to turn around situations and to turn them around and thereby create uh, um, situations which are examples that can be followed. So for example, um, we, uh, I thought it was, yes, we had about uh, 1,200, I'm sorry, 120 interventions last year. It was a difficult year. And out of that, 36% actually changed the situation. Now that, that's a good threshold. And I think that, um, we would like to, to consider that anti-Semitism is not just something which is um, which which is stat, uh, stat, just stat, static. It isn't. Just like we're looking today at Delta and other variants, it is a mutation. And it was Rabbi uh, Sachs who 
created that, that question and, and the answer to it. Um, I'd like to, uh, my Jewishness, by asking you a question. And that is an article that came out, I think it was yesterday or certainly the day before yesterday, about how uh, evangelical young people are turning. They're turning away from their religion, they're turning away from uh, the, the politics that uh, evangelic, uh, um, evangelists have ca carried for years. There is now uh, a turn to the left, and also uh, with it, it turns them away from Israel. Can you, or, or perhaps uh, um, uh, one of the others, explain the situation and tell us what is exactly happening? Uh, yes, uh, Dr. Samuels. I, I don't put much stock in this particular poll that you're talking about, this survey, which found that within the last three years alone, uh, evangelical support for Israel among young adults, young evangelicals, 18 to 29, had dropped from around 67% to about 36%, uh, you know, almost uh, ha half, cut in half. But that same poll found that around 75% uh, of these same young evangelicals supported Israel uh, su supported Jerusalem as the capital of Israel only, which is one of the real litmus tests of whether you're pro-Israel or not. So I, I don't know the methodologies and, and such used. I know here in Israel, there's several academics trying to use it as a club against Netanyahu, who's just lost power, saying you, you bet on the evangelicals and you put us in danger by uh, alienating the American Jewish uh, community, which tends to be more liberal or le on the left. And I, I think there's, a, there's too much evidence out there. There is a problem among young people in general and young Christians that uh, they're really interested in social justice these days. They see Palestinian suffering. They just don't know yet that it's not so much Israel's fault, that it's Palestinian leaders causing it. As they get educated, as they get older, they sort of tend to become more conservative. And I do think uh, in America in particular, some of the young Christians were like me. I grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up with dispensationalism, a certain uh, uh, type of uh, uh, Christian view that really focuses on the dark side of prophecy, Armageddon, the Antichrist, it sees two-thirds of the Jews dying here before one-third finally call on Jesus. And it's uh, uh, I was sort of turned off by that thinking, and I think a lot of young Christians are still turned off by it, and, and uh, they eventually find, you know, through efforts like our organizations or others, that, uh, you know, there's a different approach to Israel that is based on faith in a God who promised long ago the land of Israel to the Jewish people, and, and Israel's restoration today is just uh, evidence of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, I think we need to come to a close. Uh, let me just summarize by uh, repeating our uh, going back to where I started. 
and David just hinted at this theology of replacement that dominated the church for so many centuries and which made the Jews the scapegoats for all kinds of evil. And indeed, the spirit of anti-Semitism is, is like a, a malady, like something that blinds people. So I, I quoted several very absurd and bizarre accusations and people who are infected with this spirit, they just believe it blindly without you know, even questioning the uh, rationale of it. Uh, but fortunately, uh, I believe that we have seen a major shift in the Christian theology over the last century. And uh, uh, undoubtedly, the uh, restoration of Israel and the Holocaust uh, both contributed to uh, some soul searching on the part of Christians. And I would say, and as I'm traveling around the world, uh, I meet Christians, evangelicals in many countries, uh, in not only in the West, in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, in Oceania. They sincerely love Israel. They are free of this uh, uh, replacement theology, which is a fertile breeding ground for all kinds of anti-Jewish sentiment and uh, prejudice. And uh, so I believe there is hope. But uh, as we are a Christian organization, I think that we have to be active. We have to, especially in Europe, use all the ways we, we can, be it political lobbying, be it uh, political or public demonstrations, uh, writing articles to the press, doing what we can to counter that wave of anti-Semitism. But first and foremost, we need to pray because the, the root cause, as we believe, is spiritual. And that is uh, the, the first way how we can tackle it. But uh, anyway, I would like to thank very much our speakers, uh, Krista, for uh, giving a, a great mm, you know, snapshot of uh, what goes on in Germany with uh, some positive and negative signs. We know how to pray for Germany. And Dr. Samuels, thank you very much for your overview and for your, for your very informed presentation. Uh, it's a great honor that we can work together. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to many more uh, opportunities to, of meeting and speaking and doing things together. And thank you, David, for your contribution as well. So this concludes our webinar. I thank all of you for uh, your, uh, for your uh, interest and for your participation. And uh, we are going to see you. Uh, certainly in many other occasions, we are running these seminars every uh, week with uh, a lot of uh, interesting topics. So with that, I just wish you blessings from Jerusalem. Shalom and goodbye. Shalom. <laughs>